Uh, what I want to talk about is what I consider to be a lack, a very notable lack in modern American imaginative writing, and, and, and really a rather extraordinary one, and that is uh, writing about money, about the relationship between people and money. Uh, now, there's no lack of uh, writing about uh, money uh, in in uh, journalism, and uh, but 99% of all that's written about money is to help people make it. It's kind of a self-help thing. This is the exact opposite of what I mean. What I speak of is uh, money as a uh, an element in the human equation, like love, you might say, a, a uh, the relationship between people and money. It is my argument is uh, the stuff of imaginative literature, and it's uh, and it's something that uh, is being neglected in American writing for re reasons that we have to guess at. I'm going to take a couple of guesses in a minute or so. Uh, first of all, think of money in its uh, in its social context. If you, think, if you think about the subject, you come to the conclusion that there are really two kinds of money. There's the kind that people work hard to earn, earned money. Uh, and the other kind is uh, the kind made by trading, by buying cheap and selling dear, uh, which might be called entrepreneurial money or Wall Street money, the kind that's made in, in uh, the stock market or in real estate and so on. And uh, you can argue that that's earned, but it certainly isn't earned in the sense that a wage or a salary is. Now. Society confers all, uh, all social power is conferred by the second kind, the Wall Street or entrepreneurial kind of money, because it's so, it's so much easier to accumulate. The tax laws are so arranged that earned money uh, cannot be accumulated in the, in the kind of, uh, into big fortunes, which are where uh, social power lies, obviously. So what we have here is we have a clear-cut uh, discrimination by our society against earned money and in favor of unearned money. And the acquisition of unearned money is essentially a game. It, is, uh, it's, it, it consists of the, the uh, skill of learning to buy cheap and sell dear in whatever uh, type of uh, operation the uh, entrepreneur chooses to engage. So what we have here is a situation as if we, uh, we had entrusted uh, our society to uh, champions in a chess or mahjong or some game. Uh, and considering that we do this, it's uh, really rather strange that it works out as well as it does, or so it seems to me. Anyhow, my conclusion is that uh, we have here uh, an absurd situation. Uh, and uh, uh, we ha and I, can s I think that this kind of thing is the stuff of, uh, of literature. And I wonder why. It is not. It does not uh, appear more in uh, our imaginative writing when we are w living, living in a society which operates in the same in in such a odd way and entrusts uh, power, social power, in such an odd way. Now to go on to an, to, to the next step, bring it to bring uh, bring the matter down to to personal relationships between individual people and money. There are in American uh, history uh, various people, various money people, who are, who are extraordinarily rich uh, characters and might well have been sub subjects for fiction, but for odd reasons, uh, or odd to me, uh, have never been used as material uh, for fiction and, uh, have, and have not been written about too much in nonfiction either. Take Hetty Green, for example. Most people know the name Hetty Green. She was a, uh, she was a, woman who lived in the 19th century uh, who 
earned the reputation of being, or she was called the Witch of Wall Street for a variety of reasons, uh, mostly because she used to go around in uh, old tattered black costumes when she was doing her wheeling dealing in Wall Street. Uh, Hetty Green was, uh, uh, was a fascinating uh, character. Al she's almost my favorite uh, money woman. She started out, for someone who loves money, she started out the right way. Uh, that is, she was an heiress. She inherited a couple of million dollars. Uh, and that, uh, that got her off to a flying start, but she didn't, uh, she didn't stop there. She ended up, uh, uh, she lived in a time when women who inherited money were supposed to entrust it to male trustees. It was not a time of women in finance. But Hetty was that way, was very much of a maverick. She wouldn't have thought of entrusting her money to anyone. She uh, went, did all her wheeling and dealing herself, and she ended up with uh, the richest woman in the world with a fortune that was estimated over $100 million. Uh, and she, was, she had all kinds of very odd and paradoxical uh, characteristics. She was so parsimonious, she was so tight that she used to, uh, in the office that she used for lunch, she used to cook oatmeal on the radiator. And when she'd go to the doctor, uh, Hetty would always put on her worst clothes so that in the hope the doctor would think she was poor and uh, give her a low fee. Unfortunately, she became, this became known, and uh, the doctors usually... Uh, smelled out that it was Hetty Green and sent exceedingly high fees. Again, with lawyers, uh, Hetty always wanted to get a bargain for legal services, which she constantly needed, and she, uh, therefore she was always looking for what she called a lawyer with a sore ear. That was an expression of hers which meant a lawyer who had the same prejudice that she did and would therefore take her case on cheap. So here we had a classic, uh, uh, a classic case of uh, parsimony, very tight. But the odd and paradoxical thing is that she was very, she was very generous in non-money matters. This was a monomania about money, and it did not ex extend uh, beyond money. Oh, well, I could, I could go on all day with heady stories about her, about her parsimony and, and uh, her suspicion. She was afraid of her relatives. She thought they wanted uh, her money and that they would try to poison her. Consequently, when she visited any of her relatives, she, was, she would take a little spirit lamp and uh, cook herself up a boiled egg and refuse to eat anything that was served to her uh, so that she couldn't be assassinated, and so on. So her life went. Hetty got older and older and richer and richer and queerer and queerer, and uh, she had, a, I would say, a very happy life. Uh, she had a lifelong, 90-year, uh, passionate love affair with money. It's a very romantic story, and I think that it might well have been used in imaginative literature. It hasn't been. One other case. Uh, take Richard Whitney, who was president of the Stock Exchange at the, uh, immediately after the 1929 crash and through the 30s when Wall Street was making its stand against, uh, against the intrusion of Washington regulation. Richard Whitney was uh, a, a money masochist. Uh, he was the, uh, money was the instrument of his, uh, what you might call, death wish, I suppose. If it hadn't been money, it might have been something else, but as it happened, it was money. Richard Whitney had everything. Everything was, was set up so that he should win in the stock market. He was president of it. He knew all the right people. He had all the right advice. His brother was a partner of J.P. Morgan and Company. Uh, various of his other relatives had been uh, uh, partners of J.P. Morgan and Company and the presidents of banks. His ancestors had come over on the Arbella, the ship that followed the Mayflower, and so on. There was every reason that he should have been a financial success, yet somehow or other he wasn't. He was a terrible investor. He was a worse investor than, uh, uh, than 
uh, any, any of us, no matter how bad we may be, Richard Whitney was a worse investor. He would, he would put his money in stocks that, uh, uh, that uh, he wouldn't have dreamed of listing on the New York Stock Exchange, of which he was president. He just, uh, he just seemed to have the, uh, and then he would lose all his money, uh, or great sums of money uh, on it, and finally, uh, practically all. Uh, and as a result of this, he became uh, he became one of the most uh, extraordinary borrowers in the uh, in the history of of borrowing. First, he borrowed sums in the hundreds of thousands, and finally, uh, the millions from his uh, brother, who worked who was a partner of J.P. Morgan and Company. Finally, he, having used up his credit with his brother, he borrowed from friends. Finally, he he. Uh, used up his friends and he was borrowing from strangers and on and on it went all to support these terrible investments and then uh, at last when it came to uh, to his uh, uh, to the unhappy climax of his career when he had when he was uh, when he had uh, finally been forced to resort to embezzling and had been caught and uh, was about to be exposed as an embezzler he uh, he he did what i think was the most characteristic uh, thing of his career as a money man of all. He went to his worst enemy in Wall Street, a man who had been his enemy for years named Ben Smith, and tried to borrow uh, from him. And if I can be uh, excused for reading a short paragraph out of my own book, Once in Golconda, I'll explain how that effort came out. On going to Ben Smith, Whitney made no lame effort to ingratiate himself. Rather, he announced brusquely that he, quote, wanted to get this over quickly as if, say, his mission were to administer a justified rebuke to an inferior. Then he said that he wanted to borrow $250,000, quotes, on my face, by which he meant uh, without offering any collateral. Smith's reply was, in the circumstances, not startling and can scarcely be described as ruder than the occasion called for. I remarked that he was putting a pretty high value on his face, Smith recounted later. So he told me that was his story and his back was to the wall and he had to have $250,000. I told him he had a lot of nerve to ask me for $250,000 when he didn't even bid me the time of day. I told him I frankly didn't like him, that I wouldn't loan him a dime. Whitney nodded. That was that. Well, I feel that uh, the career of, um, of either uh, Hetty Green or Richard Whitney is, uh, is the material of imaginative writing, and I think it's uh, rather uh, extraordinary that they are such characters, and uh, this American financial history is shot through with such characters, uh, have not appeared more in our imaginative writing. As a matter of fact, it took an Englishman, uh, Trollope, to use uh, Hetty Green, a character uh, who sounds an awful lot like Hetty Green, appears in, uh, in Trollope's novel, The Way We Live Now. But uh, so far as I know, uh, no such character has appeared in, in our own writing. Uh, well, let's think for a minute about what uh, what is uh, what American writers do deal with this topic. Among first-rate novelists of the present time, uh, so far as I've so far as I know, only John che uh, John Cheever and Saul Bellow uh, have seriously uh, written anything about uh, the relationship between Americans and money. This, in spite of the fact that we are supposed to be a money-obsessed country. Uh, take the whole subject of the income tax. Now, the income tax is a great fact of our national life, uh, for good or ill. Uh, some people think it's terrible. Uh, some think it isn't so bad. But none of us escape it. It's, uh, it would be hard to deny that it is the most important single law on our books. And it affects uh, all of our lives in all income groups uh, uh, in one way or another. 
Well, now, what's been written imaginatively that uh, deals with this, uh, this great national fact and great national preoccupation? Uh, I can think only of Cheever's The Wapshot Scandal, in which there's an old lady who goes to great lengths to evade paying her income tax, and uh, Patty Chayefsky's play The Latent Heterosexual, which deals with the subject, but which hasn't been, so far as I know, hasn't been produced in any major way. What is the explanation of this lack? Uh, and I might say, uh, parenthetically, that it's particularly amazing in view of uh, what I've observed to be writers' personal preoccupation with the subject of money. Most of the writers that I know, not in their writing, but in their conversation and in their lives, uh, seem to uh, make a great deal uh, of the subject. Uh, in fact, uh, some of us are a little bit paranoiac on it, I think. We think that the uh, income tax and various other laws tend to discriminate against us, and uh, when we get together uh, at the Penn Club or somewhere else, uh, the subject is likely to come up, but not in our writing, often. Uh, oh, another aside. This is, this, is very, this is very parenthetical indeed. Uh, why, I want to know, is it that people, uh, non-writers, who are very polite, genteel people, feel free to ask writers about their income and the amount of money they made on such and such a book, where they wouldn't dream of asking such a thing uh, of, a, of, of a lawyer, a doctor, uh, uh, any professional, or a businessman. They would consider it the height of rudeness. But somehow or other, they uh, feel that uh, it's a question that's all right to ask a writer. I just, uh, I just throw that in. To resume, I think perhaps one reason for the lack is that uh, we, we, there, there has come to be a view that it is unfashionable to, uh, write, about, uh, to write about money. It's, uh, in our culture, we tend to make an antithesis between uh, the literary uh, and the and the uh, financial or business, uh, it's uh, it's a, a snob point to pretend ignorance about money affairs. I've I've seen again and again uh, people uh, pretend to that uh, that they don't know anything about money when uh, it turns out that they know quite a bit. That in itself is a, could be a subject for writing. I think there's a custom in novels, for example, that you're not supposed to give exact sums of money. You're supposed to it's considered more fashionable to speak uh, vaguely about money, more, uh, more genteel, I think, would be the expression. And in general, the, what people do between 9 and 5, the working day, uh, is, ten, is ignored in novels. Uh, most of the novels of the present day are, are about sensibility, and uh, they m you'll find them mostly taking place uh, after hours. Often you uh, read about people who seem to have no financial worries, but you haven't got the faintest idea why or uh, what, uh, what they actually do for a living. Uh, in other words, I describe this as a kind of prudishness uh, towards, uh, towards the subject of money, uh, somewhat analogous to the prudishness towards sex uh, back in the Gilded Age after the Civil War and on until on into this century. Uh, and this, and they're, they're both subjects that have, uh, well, I think we now know that the subject of sex has great literary possibilities. And I suggest that the subject of money has some which, uh, has, uh, which have been uh, lost Back in the, uh, uh, in the, the, the traditional 19th century English novel did not have such a, uh, did not have such a prejudice, did not have such a lack. Uh, Trollope in particular, and Dickens to a lesser extent, uh, wrote about business without any, uh, without any uh, embarrassment and made it the main subject of books. 
the situation was somewhat different. These, these books were set against uh, a fixed society based on land. We have no, much, no such society. We have a much more anarchic uh, uh, society in which, uh, in which much more social mobility is possible, and it makes the subject more difficult. Uh, and the pro I think the problem is that, that uh, when, you, when you write about business, that business becomes so interesting that it tends to overwhelm the characters, and they, uh, they become, uh, they, they're dwarfed. In our, in our literature, Theodore Dreiser, of course, who wrote about, uh, wrote several novels, particularly The Titan and The Financier, about uh, a robber baron was, uh, was an exception to the general rule that I've set forward. What Dreiser was doing was describing in fictional terms a new phenomenon, the, uh, the, the, the uh, American self-made millionaire. And uh, in, his, in his work was, is very, was very interesting and remains very interesting as a kind of social reporting. But the subject did tend to get a bit out of hand precisely because it was so interesting. The characters, uh, Cowperwood, his main character in, the, in uh, the Financier and the Titan, tends to be dwarfed by the world in which he lives, the, uh, the world of money and the, uh, and the stock exchange and uh, this, uh, this fascinating game that he's involved in. Uh, tends to get the upper hand over character in a way that it never did uh, in Trollope, writing about a more stable society. Going on to more recently, we have in the 1920s, we had one writer, F. Scott Fitzgerald, who was uh, a veritable poet of money, or rather uh, of the rich. It's a little different from money. He was ob obsessed uh, with the rich, and, and he had a completely irrational attitude uh, that, the, the rich, uh, w that the rich were somehow more romantic and more interesting than anybody else uh, simply because they were rich. Uh, now, this, of course, wasn't true, but nevertheless, it was an obsession that uh, was, uh, was a wonderful thing for Fitzgerald as a writer. It made him uh, a, kind of, uh, a kind of poet, as I've said, uh, of money because he believed in this, in this mystique. Uh, he only wrote about, he, he assumed that uh, that people had all, he didn't tell you how people got the money, or not the ones that he considered that counted. In The Great Gatsby, we know that Jay Gatsby is a bootlegger, and he's associated with the uh, criminals, with the uh, underworld elements. But he isn't really, he is, he is the uh, outsider striving to join these, the, these magical rich that Fitzgerald was obsessed with and, uh, and loved so much. On the other hand, uh, Daisy and Tom, the people that uh, Gatsby is trying to uh, get, up, get, get up to be level with, we never know where they got their money. All we know is that they have it, and apparently have always had it. So that it, it, to, only, to a, only to a limited extent can I include Fitzgerald as a writer about money and the possibilities of the relationships between uh, people and money. Nevertheless, he was the last of our writers who truly, I believe, who truly understood those possibilities, the literary possibilities of that topic. In the 30s, we had, a, we had a new tradition come up, or an old one revived. That is, uh, uh, what not, not having money does to people, the other side of the same subject. And we had some noble books uh, along those lines. In the 50s, we got into, we got into a new phase. And uh, it didn't produce anything as worthy as either the 20s or the 30s. We had, uh, it, was, it was a phase of technical explanation of the new world of post-war finance, uh, which, was, which, was, uh, which was far more complicated than had been the, the uh, money world that Dreiser had written about. For example, the books of Cameron Hawley, in which 
the subject of how money is made, how conglomerates are put together, and uh, how, the, how the stock market is manipulated and so on, are so f fascinating that it becomes a kind of sports writing. And then uh, the writer and the uh, characters themselves uh, are dwarfed. In the 60s, I think writers practically gave up the subject, perhaps for this uh, reason, uh, and uh, because, because it was too difficult. And just turned aside, as I say, wrote about people not between 9 and 5, but uh, after, and not about their, and not about their uh, outer relationships, which in fact it was so much of, our, of most of our lives, but about uh, inner reveries. The 70s, we don't know. Of course, we don't know what's going to happen in the 70s, uh, but we, we do know that money is going to be a part of it and that people are going to uh, have it on their minds as they have in the past. Uh, and it is my hope for the 70s that uh, the writers will go back to the old tradition of the novel and will uh, not, uh, will not allow this, uh, this great lack in, uh, in uh, the scope of description of contemporary lives to continue, but will bravely grasp the nettle, as sharp as it may be, and return to the great and old tradition of serious writing about people and money, and I'm speaking of both fiction and nonfiction.